Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction, but more importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Man, I, you know, when I say that, it just automatically gives this podcast credibility. Does it? Yeah, I think okay. so. Because other right. than that, it's just a guy who tells fart jokes and is a recovering alcoholic. You Which give us credibility. I mean, I made yeah. a career out of it. You sure have. You know, yeah. so I got that going for me. Yeah. Well, we did different things, but we ended up in the same place. Yeah. Yeah, right? we're both here talking. Just like I say, there's a million different ways up Sober Mountain. You That's just got to find the one that works the best for you. There's a million different ways to end up at KSL. Yes, right. <laughs> right? There is. As yeah. a matter of fact, I was talking to somebody, and uh, Tanya, she's the big boss here. Yes. We uh, like and Tanya. I owe her my career. She's awesome. Uh, she's hired me three times. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, what was that thing that uh, George W. Bush got in trouble for fool me once. <laughs> he didn't get in trouble. He just couldn't say it. Yeah. And so, you notice I wasn't even an attempt to say it. Right. Because yeah. I'd, I'd get lost in my words, too. Yeah. It's like when I'm filming every morning, for those of you just joining, I also am a TV reporter. Yeah. And I'm a feature reporter. That means I go on location. You, you sh- you've shown up at my house at 5 a.m. before. Yeah. 5.30. To talk about therapy Oof, stuff. That was early. But like every once in a while when I'm on live TV and uh, I'm trying to spit a sentence out. As soon as the camera goes off, my photog goes, words are hard. Words are hard. Words are hard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I got a couple of things. You're pretty good at it, though. You're, you know, you're good off the off the cuff. I'm really good. Shooting from the hip. When we're doing it live. Yeah. And then after we do the morning show, sometimes we'll tape something for the noon show. And I always mess up the taped ones. And I wonder it's because I know that I can redo it. If it's live, I, I just oh, go, yeah. whatever's out there is out there, and we just got to keep moving forward. No, I bet that's what it is. But yeah. when it's taped, I always go back and go, ugh. Yeah. So I've got a couple things, and then you've got a couple things, yeah, and yeah. we've got a, a great guest today. Her name's Kate, and uh, we're going to find out a little bit about her story in a minute. But uh, since we're talking about TV, I wanted to bring this up. So every day um, at 8.30, I get a text from uh, our executive producer. Her name's Tasia. And she sends me over the ratings of our morning show. From that day or from, from the, the day week? before? Oh, day before. Okay. So, you, you know, you can kind of see where you are against uh, the other companies the in other the, morning shows yeah in town yeah local is it only local it's only local okay. yeah because it's only our time period which is from you know four thirty till 7 okay uh and so she sent these numbers over and this was uh, earlier this week and the caption just goes blah blah yeah so yeah. i click on them and, and the numbers well, aren't good oh they're not where we want them to be for that okay day. all right and so i write to her you got to have bad days to appreciate the good days Nice. And then she comes back with, you have so many inspiring quotes on the ready. And then I write, almost losing it all will give you a different perspective. Yeah. And it was one of those things that, like, that really meant something to me. Because I do appreciate everything I have this go around so much more. Yes. You, you know, because sure. for, the, for the longest time, um, uh, I, everything just seemed to work out. You know, in my life, it always just yeah. seemed to work out. Well, and, I I remember the radio days turned into TV days. I mean, TV you, days turned into a talk show, yep. and then you know, married and kids and, and and everything. And it just I was like, in my head, I could do no wrong. It always just seemed to work out. So much in the fact that every time my mom was yelling at me about my drinking and stuff like that, I would tell her, "It's fine. It's going to be fine." And my remember because it hasn't gotten in the way yet. Hasn't gotten in the way yet. And I remember my mom telling me one time, and I was drunk, and she was mad, and she goes, "If you say it's going to be fine one more time, (laughs) it's not going to be fine." Yeah, I mean, she was at the very end of it, and then as everybody saw, because it played out in you know in the public, uh, it wasn't fine. Yeah, and my world imploded. Right. And I was then forced with, "What am I going to do?" And I remember thinking, I'm going to give it everything I got, and I'm going to try to get it back. And crazy enough, we're, we're, we're there. We're getting it all back. And the thing is, I am so much more appreciative of all the gifts and everything that I have in my life now than I ever was. I don't think I truly appreciated it. I mean, I was grateful for a lot of it. When things come easily, not that you didn't work hard, but when things just always kind of work out, you, your appreciation does go down. 
when people just give you things. No one just gave you anything. No. But like if you think about a high school kid whose parents just give him a brand new car versus a kid who has to earn money to buy a used car, there's a big difference in how grateful and appreciative you are for that car. So I am so much more appreciative of the things that I have now, the ability to entertain people in the morning, the ability to put my kids to bed, the ability to do a daddy-daughter dance with my daughter for drill night. You know, I mean, it, it was one of those things that were like, I want to say four or five years ago, I'd, I'd have felt more like, oh, I've got to do this. Mm. Now I get to do this yeah. because there was a time in my active addiction where I didn't know if I was ever going to get those chances again. I didn't know if there was going to be a time that I could go into my kids' rooms as they sleep and look at them and go, it's going to be okay. Dad's here. Yeah. Well, does that make sense? Absolutely. I think I, you said you got it back. I think it's better for you. Oh, 100% just, better. 100% better. Yeah. I think you've surpassed where it was. And, 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 and Even career-wise. Career-wise. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not saying this to be braggadocious or anything. Yeah. I'm just saying that recovery has given me more than I ever could have imagined. Yeah. Ever. Ever. Like, I was just, I just wanted there's to There's a billboard on I-15 that says there's something to the effect of there is life in recovery. And I think about you when I drive by and see that. It's up towards Davis County. And uh, I think about you sometimes when I see that because I think not only is there life, but there is an abundance in recovery. Life is abundant in recovery. Amen. And I don't throw that word around a lot. Amen. Mm. And and, the, and one thing that makes me think about you often, and, and I'll know I mess it up, but it's perspective. It's perspective. And it's, uh, it's how we look at things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Determines your reality every day. And so that's kind of go back to that text with, you know. With Tasia. Yeah. It was like, hey, you know, I mean, yeah, they're not great, but they're not bad. uh, And we've got to go through this to get to where we want to be. And it's just part of life. Everything's not always going to work out. Yeah. And you got to be okay with that. Yeah. And it makes you work harder. If if the numbers were up, you probably wouldn't change anything or you, you just start sort of getting complacent. So I think I've been around you media folks for so many years now that I know that you overlook at the numbers, but when the numbers are down, that's when everybody kicks it into high gear and good stuff happens. And, and, and that's kind of like recovery. That's when we start to fight and figure out who we are. When we're at our rock bottom and we go, okay, we got a choice here. We can either fight to get our life back or we can just resign and say, this is it. Right. And, and, and we've seen so many people who have fought and got their life back and so much more mm-hmm. and really pulled off what was like an underdog story, an impossible situation and, and, and are thriving. Um, I had a conversation with a physician, a, an MD, the other day. We were talking about optimism, pessimism. He knows I do this show. And he was saying, he's like, do you really like doing that show? You know, he's, you know, he doesn't do anything in the world of addiction or recovery. He's not that kind of doc. And I said, you know, I really do. And he, he, he's a funny guy. He's like, oh, yeah? What do you like about it? You know, he's one of those prove-it-to-me kind of guys. Hey, he's a friend. I get it, yeah. 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 And I, I, I had to think about it for a second. And I, my, my usual go-to is I love hanging out with you and Josh, and we have fun with our guests. But I said, you know what? The thing that I really love the most about it is it's almost always, and I would maybe even say always, a high for me leaving the studio because the people that come in are doing exactly what you're describing right now. They're going from these terrible situations to now they're just killing it. They're, they have a nonprofit. I wouldn't even know how to set up a nonprofit. Right. They're doing amazing things and helping so many people in our community. And I think, you know, somebody told me the other day, it's like, uh, you know, to win the game of life, you have to, it's like, step on other people. That's not what they said, but it was that to that effect. Mm-hmm. And my response to them was, I guess that depends on what game you're playing. Because the people that come in here are winning the game of life. And yeah. it's so inspiring to me to, to hear where they've been and what they're doing now and how much they give back to the community. It's fun. I just I love it. When people try to, to ask me and put me on a, on, a, on, on a point to say, hey, what do you like about the podcast? And I go, it's like um, the inspiration you get from watching a Disney movie. Although the bad person is just drugs in every story. Because you see somebody who started out and then had something happen to them and then they come out and then they beat it and they overcome it and then they're walking out on a high note. It, it, it's, yeah. it's amazing. It is fun. And I think we're going to have one of those today. Our guest today is Kate Loser. Did I get it right? Almost. What did I say? Loser. It's Losser. Losser. So Losser. close. So close. Loser Losser. Yeah. You know what the difference between a vase and a vase is? 
how you say it? No, 10 bucks. 10 bucks. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's a joke my dad used to tell all the time. So where does the story of Kate begin? So I grew up and I was born in Sandy, Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, was born there, raised there, family of five, parents together, uh, older sister, older brother. Um, I was the youngest by six years, so I always felt like I was the little one in the, the family. trailer kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the one in the back, like, "Hey, wait for me." Yeah. Are you the only sibling with an addiction problem? Um, I am. Yeah, I am. We're Just gonna me. find out a little bit more about that. You're listening to Kate, and this is her story on Project Recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willier. Our guest today is Kate Losser. Yeah, you yeah. got it. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> I practiced that three times before we turned the mics on. Radio professional. Yeah. So, uh, youngest of five. Yes. Uh, your six years. Well, trail- three. Three. Five in the family. Three siblings. Oh, okay. Three plus two is five, but the two are the parents. Did I mention I went to Ogden High? Math is hard. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. And so you're six years behind uh, your oldest sibling. Yeah. So was that sort of like growing up kind of like an only child in some ways? Yeah. Kind of like an only child. Um, I asked to have an exchange student. I was like, hey, if I'm not going to have siblings in the house, can we get an exchange student or a dog <laughs> You manufactured or your own or a dog. <laughs> so did you often feel like you were alone and kind of just doing it? Yeah. Yeah. Did you get an exchange student? We did. From where? Yeah, from Japan. From Japan. Yes. Okay. Did you also get a dog? We also got a dog. Wow. See, look, Kate, she's she's on it. (laughs) So your parents were very... Like, yes, you need this here. We'll give it to you. Yeah. Accommodating. Yeah. Yeah. And so growing up, um, when was the first time that you tried uh, alcohol or drugs? So I was 16 years old. Um, I was at a wedding and it was my... Uh, sister's boyfriend was like, hey, here, try this. And I was like, all right. And I chugged them both, and it was like, oh, wow. Were they cocktails or beers or or champagne, probably? (laughs) Oh, I wish. They were uh, beers. Yeah, PBRs. PBRs. It was was that wedding. You don't get a PBR wedding. (laughs) No, you don't. No, you don't. (laughs) That's what we used to say in college. Yeah. Because we couldn't afford good beer, so we had to make drinking bad beer good. There you go. And then all of a sudden... PBR became this hipster beer, and then it, it is the expensive. hipster beer. Yeah, it is. So you pounded two beers, and you remember thinking to yourself, "Wow!" I was like, "Oh yeah, I got it. I'm on it." Well, what was the alcohol culture of your family? My fa- my parents drank uh, wine with dinner. My dad drank, um, so it was pretty regular in the house. Um, you never snuck a beer glass of wine before sixteen. No, oh. actually. How how come if it was there? Did your parents have pretty strict rules on drinking underage? Did they ever sit down? Because right now, if you're watching TV, uh, and I watch a lot of TV, they run commercials all the time that saying, hey, you should talk to your kids about underage drinking. I think they says from like 6 to 12. Those are the ages where you want to talk to them and be like, hey, this is not okay. You should Those not. commercials seem a little cheesy, but they're actually based in research. Parents who talk to their kids about not drinking underage uh, have better success of kids not drinking underage. So did your parents talk to you about not drinking? No, they didn't talk to me. I was just watching my older siblings kind of go through it and sneak alcohol. And I was like, uh, oh, I don't want to do that. Did were they, they get in trouble? Yeah. 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 So I was like, smart. okay, Kate's I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. So this is where Dr. Matt's going to regale us with some uh, knowledge because that's what type of learning? Observational learning or vicarious learning. And, and, and most addicts don't really live that way. Uh-uh. No. Uh, it, it, the, the addict type- brain is sort of a learn-as-you-go, yeah. you know, behavioral learning. Yeah. You know, it was like I had to touch the stove to find out it was hot. I didn't yeah. want to trust anybody. Yeah, consequence-driven learning. No, vicarious learning, learning by observing, is uh, usually saves a person a lot of trouble. Yeah. And uh, that for worked for you until about 16, and then you had a couple beers. Right. Did you take up drinking pretty quickly after that, or was it still kind of sporadic? It was pretty quick after that. It was like, a, oh, that was awesome. I'm going to try it on what my was, own. What was awesome about it? I I like the feeling. I like that like all that anxiety, fear just went away. I got to be. I got to you know kind of numb was the thing that I loved about it. She engaged her limbic system. I don't know what that means. With dopamine. Okay. 
Yeah. So and, and, that, that's part of the reward system and the pleasure center of your brain. And it felt good. And you were like, oh, I like this. And addicts, uh, we all like have a limbic system. We all have dopamine. Uh, that uh, honestly determines a lot of the things we like in life. But um, addicts tend to have uh, a, an overactive system. And so alcohol can uh, mimic things in the limbic system and uh, can hook you in a little faster. So do other drugs. And that's a, what doctor's response and an addict's response is you like the liquid courage. It lets you be the person you always wanted to be. Yeah. It, it, it opened up the gates and uh, gave you freedom to be who you thought you should be or, or, or something like that, right? Right. It gave me freedom. I could talk easily. I could connect. I felt like I all my walls had gone down. Um, and that's what I liked about it. It was like I didn't have to feel the fear anymore. Did, would you describe yourself as sort of an anxious kid in any way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, so sensitive, um, loud noises or, like, anything like that. It was just like, oh, I would run away. I would hide. I would cry. Mm. Super anxious kid. Okay. And I think that's a common... Uh, experience anxiety is miserable right Mm -hmm. i mean it really is it's a miserable thing to live with and if you grow up sort of biologically predisposed to anxiety you don't really know what it's like to not be anxious Mm -hmm. until alcohol yeah you have a drink or something like that Mm -hmm. so after the two beers at the wedding you decided you were going to give it a shot rolling solo what does that look like yeah i just stole liquor out of my parents cabinet as simple as many stories go and now were you drinking by yourself or were you now drinking with friends? First time was by myself. And then it was like, oh, hey, I'm friends. Do you drink? Let's try this. Did you do what Casey did and he would fill the vodka bottle up with water and put it back in the freezer? I didn't. No, yeah. I just let it, left So to it. let you know, vodka doesn't freeze. And so when it does freeze, but your water parents, does. Yeah, <laughs> they know. They, they bust you real quick. I learned that the hard way. So then... Did the friends that you get to drink with you at, at, at 16 and 17, were they your friends before drinking or did you become friends with them because they also shared uh, interest in drinking? Does that they, make sense? Right. Yeah. They were my friends before. Um, and I think it was at the time that they were also starting to drink was that we all kind of drank That's together. That's kind of the age when kids are a little more courageous to experiment with things. Yeah. Yeah. And so I drank with one of my friends and then we had a group of friends that would all drink together on the weekends um and it kind of became that just weekend drinking every weekend there in high school and that seems pretty normal yeah i mean i I mean it was that similar to my story you know and you know i mean i think that's the rite of passage or i think that's what a lot of uh it's a typical high school thing. Not every high schooler does it, but I mean, yeah, the, the weekend parties. I mean, the 80s made a ton of Keggers. money off of movies based oh, on yeah. that theme every, alone. Every teen movie was based on that theme. Yeah. yeah. And so at any point, did you ever get in trouble for drinking in high school? Um, not particularly. I remember my parents, would one night they caught me. I came home really drunk, kind of stumbling up against the walls and... I uh, remember waking up my parents and they just like looked at me and they shook their heads and they were like, I think you've already punished yourself enough. Like, just go to bed, sleep it off. And did you guys talk about it the next morning or was it kind of just... It was kind of like a, well, you messed up, but what do we do about it? But you know, it's interesting because that was, like I've, I've, I've said this before, nobody ever teaches you how to drink like a gentleman. There's not a class where they sit down and do that. And there's a lot of people who think that you're going to learn as you go. Yeah. And so her lesson from her parents was you overserved yourself. It was a miserable night. Your head should hurt the next morning. And that should teach you a lesson. Yeah, I think that's a lot. A lot of times as parents, we assume that kids learn a lesson by having natural consequences and they and depending on the situation they can you know but did you no (laughs) (laughs) we kept going and so you partied pretty much throughout the rest of your high school career were you active in academics and sports as well i was i i uh was pretty good at school right my grades were fine um but then the biggest majority of my time spent was with dance like i was 
out at a studio dancing oh, Monday got, through Friday. I've got two girls in studio dance. He's yeah. a dance dad. Yeah. 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 And, I, and I know the community. So you get it. I, yeah, 100%. Like, I, I've, I've said it. Uh, I played three sports in high school, and I never worked as hard as my daughter who's on the drill team. Uh, I mean, the commitment to the team is second to none. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of what kept me from drinking more and more for a while. It was like, oh, if I had dance the next day, I'm not going to drink. We're good. Like, that was my, like... So you were prioritizing dance over that sort of Over stuff. drinking, yeah. Let me ask you this. Did you have um, family history of alcohol problems or addiction, like aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents? Yeah, I have two uncles in recovery. Um, one just celebrated his 33 years. Oh, um, Yeah. And then mental illness, like anxiety, depression, runs in my family. Which, of course, we know often goes hand in hand with addiction because... Right. Being depressed, being anxious, miserable experience, drugs and alcohol can give you sort of a temporary relief from that sometimes. A lot of times the word people use is self-medicate. Yeah, self-medicate. Right. They'll self-medicate and, and, and you know, this evens me out or this lessens it and not realizing that it's going to become a problem. So with it running in the family, was there a family conversation? Like did you guys talk about like we have addiction in our family, we should all be careful or – Actually, no. Which no. is, which I guessed because that's the norm. Most families yeah. do not talk about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how often it would change a 16-year-old's mind, but it is a good idea to talk about, just like if you're talking about, hey, we have you know heart attacks and cardiovascular runs in the family, so let's take it easy on the bacon. Or you know we have cancers in the family, we should be careful. We should also be talking about addictions in the family. But a lot of families mm-hmm. don't even know because of... Shame and guilt, people hide it. But I, I think nowadays more and more families are talking about it. Well, because the stigma was such that you didn't talk about it. And right. and mm-hmm. then when somebody gets injured, it's like, oh, yeah, I found out my uncle was an alcoholic or my grandparents were alcoholics. Well, we have addiction that runs in my family, and I don't think anyone really understood it. So, therefore, it wasn't really talked about. And most people aren't going to talk about it if they don't think you have a problem. You know, Right. Well, not understanding that it can run in families, that it, there is a genetic and a heritability factor And so some people, you know, can dabble with it and other people can't. Right. So, Kate, I'm I'm guessing you graduated high school. I graduated high school. Finished dance. Finished dance. And then uh, do you go on to college or where does the story go? Yeah, I went on to college. I went to Westminster College my first year um, and did their dance program. Um, Partied continuously. Um, And then I transferred to the University of Utah for dance that year. So you were serious about dance. I was, yeah. Wow. I was. What does that look like in college for dance? I work a yeah. lot with some of the athletes at the University of Utah, but I don't think I've ever worked with anyone in the dance program. What does that look like? It's competitive, yeah. isn't it? It is. I think more so in a college sense, it gets a little bit less competitive. Like there's a more of a community that's felt where people just want to support other people artistically. Um, in that sense, I think the, for me, I was competing with myself Mm. in it, if that makes sense. Like I wanted to be better. I wanted to do all these things. Like I had that competitive side from growing up and kind of that like, uh, perfectionistic Mm. side of wanting to be better. Um, and I kept pushing myself and it, it became a lot of pressure, um, and I actually, so I, I didn't end up finishing at the University of Utah. I got injured my second week of school. Um, I sprained my ankle the second week of school. Mm. And then the same week, I was longboarding to go study at a friend's house. And I don't longboard. Like, it just wasn't, I don't know why I was doing it. But I ended up crashing and, uh, like, breaking my wrist and injuring my foot again. And Oh, wow. So after that, I, uh, after going to the doctor, I found out I had osteoarthritis. So they were like, we probably should not dance anymore. Or Were you experiencing joint pain and things like that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it, just like, what, it wasn't healing. And so I was like, okay, cool. What are we going to do about that? And I think I started to get more and more um, down on myself, like... 
I couldn't dance like I was, you know, like my mental health and my uh, sense of self kind of started to deteriorate and spiral. That would be really hard to have dance be a part of your life to that degree and then all of a sudden be told you shouldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, what are we going to do? And so what I dropped, did you do? I dropped out. Yeah. I dropped out after a while. I just, it was a lot of pressure and I, uh, I, uh, wasn't showing up to classes. Like I just kind of like tapped out of it and I dropped out. Did your uh, frequency of partying, uh, increase? Yeah. Yeah. It increased a lot because I was like, you know what, like what else, what else are we going to fill this with? What am I going to fill this void with? And it was something I knew that was easy and worked before. And that was alcohol. That was partying. That was getting out of my head. And uh, started that long road of um, a, a dive into my addiction. And so when, when you uh, left college, um, what did you tell your parents? It's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Like... You know, and uh, I, I actually didn't tell them for a while. I kind of kept it hush-hush. And then a couple weeks after, it was like, hey, so I actually dropped out. Like, I haven't been going to classes. Um, and I just remember them being so disappointed. And I was like, crap. Like, uh, I've been working so hard to, like, be this good daughter and now i just you know dropped out of school and i couldn't do it anymore. you felt like you let, let your parents down yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, how old are you at this point i was let's see so i was 21 when i dropped out of school so to put it in perspective you're 21 you've been dancing your whole life mm-hmm. um and now you've lost what you really really love and that is dance mm-hmm. and you're told you shouldn't be dancing anymore yeah and yeah. then you decide to leave college, and now you've let down your parents. Mm-hmm. So you're probably carrying a lot of weight around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what does that what does that do to you? It was heavy. I uh, I ju- I just felt so much shame, so much shame, um, and uh, I just kind of hid from everyone. I was like, I don't want anyone to see what I'm up to. Like, I'm just going to continue to isolate and kind of crawl into my cave. And I'm going to just try to figure this out and buckle down. And uh, with that, I'm like, we're going to feel better with more and more alcohol. Um, that's the lie, huh? That's the lie, right? Because I, the more I drank, the worse things got. Did anybody reach out to you about, like, mental health things? You mentioned, I mean, I'm assuming you were pretty depressed. Mm-hmm. That was a devastation to lose, uh, uh, I, I think, lose the, the dance, lose the college connection. Uh, felt like you disappointed your parents. Yeah. So what about, like, the mental health part of it? Was that something people recognized that maybe you needed some help? Yeah, for sure. And my parents had recommended me go to therapy which I was in at the time. Um, and I was going to therapy consistently. Um, were you being honest with a therapist? I think so. I, I only ask that because mm-hmm. a lot of times people aren't. And we've said on this podcast before, honesty is your best friend when it comes to therapy. I mean, you, you've got- Yeah, a person has to open up. Uh, but why do you feel like it maybe wasn't as helpful as it could have been? There, there was a moment that I told my therapist about my drinking and I was like, hey, uh, I'm drinking a lot. And I it's I was kind of sugarcoating it, let's be honest. So the real truth wasn't coming out. I was like, hey, I'm drinking a lot and I think it's starting to become a problem. Um, and I remember her telling me like, well, like, do you think that, you know, you might just be having fun with your friends? <laughs> she made an excuse for you. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> That's a great therapist. I was like, yeah, you're right. You want to go do shots? (laughs) What are you doing after this? Sheesh. Well, I will say this, uh, just from the therapist. Generally, most of us, I will say whatever somebody admits to using in session, I'll times it by three to five. 
Mm. Oh, I see. That's exactly what I do with my little brother. Whatever he tells me he did, I divide it by three and five, and there's the truth. Yeah. So if he said he won fifteen hundred dollars, he probably won three. <laughs> okay. Well, yo. So so. How did that affect the therapy relationship after that, or or your investment in therapy? Maybe I should say. Right, right. Uh, I just, I was, I don't know. I didn't feel like I could really open up and really like explain that like I needed help. So I continued to just try to hide and he, do everything on my own continue to drink more were you drinking a lot on your own at that time i was yeah Yeah. you said something that kind of resonated with me and my addiction is that you said you kind of isolated yeah and you said to yourself i'm going to buckle down and i'm going to figure this out Mm -hmm. um but you're also drinking and those two things are counterproductive because i mean there was times that i'd sit on the back deck and i've talked about it before it was like i'm going to fix this i'm going to fix this and start drinking, you know what I mean? And, right, and right. not understanding that the problem's right there in my hand. And that if I could get rid of that, then I could start working on really what it is. But because I couldn't do them both simultaneously. It was the solution to your problem. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you're drinking by yourself. Um, are you getting in any trouble with the law or the schools or anything? I guess you're out of school at this point. Right. Uh, hadn't gotten in, in trouble with the law surprisingly. Um, and, uh, I did end up, I was working at a restaurant at the time and, uh, I was drinking on the job, drinking after the job, before the job, etc. And, uh, which let's be honest, is not that uncommon for restaurant culture, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I think that too sparked like, Oh, that's okay. Like, okay, let's just like ride this, see how long we can do it. And, uh, I just couldn't right? like, my mental health kept deteriorating. My drinking got worse and worse. And, um, like I got suspended so many times at this job for like being late and drinking on the job. Like they knew what was going on. And after a while, like, uh, I essentially was, you know, encouraged to quit. So, which I think was a godsend. Cause after that, um, it was a couple months of more isolation, more drinking on my own, just kind of getting worse and worse, um, was when I actually went to treatment, kind of hit that bottom of, okay, this needs to change. All right, we're going to stop you before we get to that, because I want to know during that month and a half, and your parents had probably noticed something in your personality change. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're no longer dancing, you're no longer at school, you're isolating. Mm -hmm. Did you have friends or family come over and go, hey, is there anything we can do for you? What's going on? Besides just offering therapy, which is, is, is nice, but I mean, I'm wondering if you had friends or anybody on the outside going, hey, Kate, what's going on? Right. Um, my friends were supportive. They didn't say anything. They were like, okay, we're just going to let her do her thing. Um, See, now I got to stop you because I, I get what friends being supportive because my friends did the same thing. You know what I mean? But I don't know if that is supportive. That's it, it's. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, what's it like from the friend's perspective, right? Like, so a friend. Sometimes we, we don't want to offend. We don't want to overstep our bounds. We don't want to rat our friend out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like we're, we don't want to call their parents. We don't – you know what I mean? Right. But as to your point, that's not always the most helpful approach. Yeah. Right. Um, I did have a friend that I worked with at the restaurant who told my manager that I was drinking on the job and – I I heard that she did this and I was furious. I was like, what? And you wouldn't come to me? Like, why? Um, but I that was another realization of like, oh, that happened. This must be pretty bad. Because we get so good at whitewashing what's going on and going like, because I know in my acts of addiction, when I would do something that I knew wasn't appropriate, but I would get away with it. Like it's two very weeks. reinforcing. Yeah, two weeks yeah. later, I was like, well, no, it's not that bad. I, I, yeah, you justify it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I had friends concerned. I would hang out with them and I'd be like, okay, I'm leaving. And they're like, wait, like, are you okay to drive? Like, don't drive, wait a little bit, like, drink some water. Um, 
so they were telling me stuff in that capacity. Um, but one of the biggest uh, the concerns brought to me was my sister, who came up to me and she was like, "Hey, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Um, like, I'm concerned about you. You're not doing anything with your life. Like, like, please, like, just do something. Like, get help." And I was like, oh, okay, 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 cool. Um, and then I didn't. I was just like, I was so, my priority was so much on alcohol at that point that, yes, I heard her words and I could feel her care for me, but alcohol at that point was more important. And that's tough. Yeah. So what does your rock bottom look like? Yeah, I... uh a couple moments um i was living at my parents house at the time and uh continuously drinking not doing anything i don't think i left the house for about two months other than to go buy alcohol um or get food um Two months of just being there, doing nothing, getting sick, um, and uh, obviously there's other moments of my rock bottom that that come up, but that was the point that was just like that's where I had landed, just absolute isolation, um, not leaving the house, not seeing sunlight for days, um, and uh, kind of feeling hopeless. Like there was no way forward. Uh, can I ask, did did you feel suicidal? Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't want to go that route. So I kept drinking. A lot of times, I mean, what you're describing is a person who's hopeless. I mean, feeling like things aren't going to get better. They're not going to change. And so the ultimate escape from our problems is to not be around. And a lot of people will tell me, just what you said. I, I feel or I felt suicidal in the sense that I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to be here anymore. I didn't want to actually end my life. So I just continued on in my own um, self-destructive patterns, in your case, alcohol. Right. And if I wasn't going to do it myself, but I wasn't opposed to it. Like if I could keep drinking and that would, you know... I would pass out or like if you didn't wake up if I didn't wake up I would be okay with that at that point yeah Mm -hmm. what kind of you said you were getting sick what kind of physical symptoms were you having I was shaky all the time like I my head hurt all the time um I felt weak for reference you um you you're a petite girl how much do you weigh? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Don't ask a girl oh, how much she weighs. Well, because so I want to be. No, it's okay. Cause, cause yeah. We've had people who said they drink a half gallon, and, and I want to put that in perspective okay. for people. Right. I mean, right. I'm, I'm, I'm not. My, okay, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, Dad's I'm, Dad, I'm Mark. fine to answer that. Um, I am 125 pounds, give or take. And how much beer do you think? Because that was your your, your your DOC, your drug of choice. Yeah. The Natty Light. Yeah. <laughs> so how many Natty Lights were you killing in a day? Uh, it, on, a, on a good day, yeah. uh, probably 20 to 30. Seems like a lot to me. Yeah, no. I think we. I think that qualifies as binge drinking. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not binge drinking it if you're doing it for two months straight. Yeah. Oh, it's a two-month two months of Binge. binging yeah and, you know yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. i think to his point uh you know you're not like a six four you know 200 pound person you're a, a small person and and that's a lot of alcohol coursing through your body and it starts to take a toll yeah um yeah yeah i uh, the physical symptoms like i like my face got really puffy um, I would like sweat at night. Like I would shake when I woke up. My anxiety was throughout the roof. Um, when that happened, I was like, oh, cool. Just drink another beer. It'll go away. The cycle would continue. Yeah. 
So how do you find yourself going to rehab? Who offers you the gift Mm. of rehab? Mm. Yeah, uh, my mom. My mom came to me and she asked me if I had ever thought about going into residential treatment. Um, And when she first asked, my wall came up. I was like, oh, God, she knows, right? Like, of course she knew. I was living in her house for months doing nothing. Um. But then I kind of let the wall go and it was like relief of like, hey, like you can open up about this. It's okay. You can ask for help. Um, And she told me about uh, Brighton Recovery Center um, in Willow Creek where it used to be. And she was like, you can find help here. Um. She's like, it's like a house that you can go and stay for 30 days and get better. Um, I was like, okay. She's like, and we have a tour today. And I was like, okay, nope, never mind. She'd already set <laughs> yeah, it up. Huh? Exactly. Yeah. That's a good mom. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I didn't go that day, but a couple of days later, I was like, all right. I came to her and I was like, yep, I, I think I'm ready. Um, I'm curious why a couple of days. Did you do some soul searching? Did you try to figure out if there was any other way out of this? Or I mean, what made you come to the conclusion is like, well, you know what, maybe we should go see what this is about. Yeah, I went and I tried to think my way through things of like, okay, well, what else can I do? What else can I do? Um, is it time? Is it is it time to kind of throw up the flag at this point, do you have a self-dialogue where you say, I've got a problem, or are you still oblivious to it? Um, I tried to deny it, but deep down I knew. Because I don't think the first time I uttered it, I mean, I thought, I mean, I'd have this self-dialogue. I would talk to myself, like, do you have a problem? It's like, no, because then I'd recount all the things that I got away with, got through with, and all this other stuff. And it wasn't until that first night in detox where I went into an AA meeting that I stood up and said, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. And at that point, mm. I still don't know if I believed it. Mm. I mean, but I, I, it's the first time that I've ever uttered it out loud, mm-hmm. you know, and whew, that was tough. Yeah. The first time I said it out loud was to my sister. Um, it was several months before I went into treatment. Um, I It was after a night of drinking and partying and uh i showed up late to a family event without any sleep and um was like falling asleep during this event and my family knew and they were just like they were pretty mad at me um and later that day my sister had asked what was going on and i just like it came up i was like hey i think i'm an alcoholic and saying those words I like burst into the tears for the first time because I knew it was true um but I just I wasn't ready to make any changes yet so um yeah so you go take a tour of the facility mm-hmm. what was that like um I remember thinking it was like wow oh, this is the nicest house i've ever been in my life (laughs) yeah and uh her name's uh lacey healy she was the administrator uh oh my gosh admissions admissions yeah thank you at at brighton and uh she gave me the tour and she was so kind so welcoming and she had mentioned like hey and after you get out there's this cool place that a bunch of sober people go and work out and cook together called fit to recover. And I was like, Oh cool. That that's cool. Um, but I just remember having hope for the first time when I went and took that tour. So did you check yourself in right then and there? No, that, uh, it was the next day that I went in. So I had one more day of (laughs) just, sad drinking um and then the next morning i went into detox was that kind of your i i've heard a lot of people say they're like well it's my last it's my last chance i'm just gonna pound 
pound it. Yeah. Get really wasted. Like most detox facilities don't want to tell you this. But like I remember when I went, I went completely sober because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And you see people outside pounding, you know. In the parking lot. In the yeah. parking lot yeah. because they want to get that last one in there. I was like, right. oh, I didn't know that was a thing. I mean. <laughs> Good for you, Casey. Yeah. I remember the lady said, what, what, are you sober? Trying to follow the rules. I'm sober. And she's like, are you really? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. She didn't believe me because I don't think a lot of people go into it sober. I don't think sober. they do either. No, I, I agree. Yeah. Right. I did. I Because it was that morning. I was like, I don't think I can drink before I go. So I didn't. Um, but yeah. So I went in sober too. How many days you do in detox? I did two days in detox. And then I uh, moved right over into to Brighton. Mm-hmm. And then how long did you do in Brighton? I was in residential for 45 days. Um, PHP, like the day treatment for 60 days. Um, IOP, 12 weeks. So what did you like about Brighton? Because, you know, on this podcast, we often hear about people's story, but we don't spend much time on their recovery uh, and the fact and the, what they liked and what they did. What did you do? What did they do at Brighton that really resonated with you? Yeah, their uh, recreational therapy program was awesome. I loved that. I uh, remember one of the first days we went on a hike um, and uh, to the, it's like the, bridge somewhere in draper Uh, i forget the name of the hike um that was that was really cool we did rock climbing and uh the rec therapist was really good at like because i i'm i love to move like being able to move you're an athlete right i mean you know being a dancer and everything yeah yeah has been just so important to like what i do and how i learn and so he would incorporate like recovery skills into rock climbing or into like going on a hike or um slack lining whatever it was like he could incorporate what we were learning for ourselves kind of bring it back to the skills of being sober exactly well i think the interesting part is is that i'm not i'm not a therapist but for the past year and a half you've been isolating sitting by yourself Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now you're out living and doing things that you haven't done for a long time. And that does give you hope. And that does bring new life into you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we that isolation, I don't think we've talked a lot about, about isolation on the podcast, but yeah. which is a key component to addiction because you don't and want depression and depression. Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. want people to see you in that way. And so you do everything you can to minimize your interaction with others. You don't want them to see you being a drunk. You don't want them to see you falling down. You don't want them to see you overweight, you, whatever it may be. Yeah. And so it just becomes a very lonely place. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you right now, me up inside my head is not a good place a lot of times, especially while I'm in active addiction. I mean, it, the, the narrative is not good. Mm-mm. No. Yeah, it's dark. It gets really dark in there. And when I'm not engaging with others, it's so easy to go back in there um so when you get to show up for people and do these activities that really like can essentially be distractions you can be present you can focus on them um while you're doing it with other people you're supporting them they're supporting you there's some magic that happens it like brings you back into life i don't know if they told you this in your recovery but i did 45 days in pinnacle Mm. and one of the key components was just showing up Mm -hmm. even if you don't want to yeah just showing up mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. The, a big step in your recovery. And it sounds like they, they taught you the same thing. It's just just showing up. Right. That, that's been huge, right? Because in, when I get in my head, again, it's that narrative of like, oh, you know what? You don't need to. Or, you know what? Like, uh, it, this is going to be hard. Like, you're going to be anxious. Like, all these things that aren't true, but my head tells me but when i actually just show up and walk through it i learn something different that it's not that hard that i can show up i can right they talk about consistency in recovery it's like showing up no matter what can give you all of this and be this big benefit to your recovery and get you back plugged in and it sounds like they created a good um you know 
a support system, like a good culture there where showing up, you don't have to show up and, and impress anybody. You can just show up and be yourself and be accepted. I think that's a big part of it. We also talk a lot about how success is much more the product of the goodness of fit, how things fit as opposed to the things themselves. So for you, being an athlete, a dancer, uh, somebody who likes to move a lot, um, this was a good fit for you. And, uh, you know, probably that combination of feeling welcomed and supported, uh, having a, it sounds like talented therapist that could, you know, not just <laughs> teach you to rock climb, but also tie that back into the principles of recovery mm-hmm. and then being able to have something that's active, right? That's a good fit for for you. Like, for example, as a therapist, we think of therapy as sitting down and talking to someone, and there's a lot of that. But I get to work a lot with um, athletes at the University of Utah, and we through the University of Utah, we work through with Utah Jazz, Real Salt Lake, a lot of Olympic development people. These are very active people. (laughs) And so uh, some of the best therapy sessions I've had with them is while we're actually doing something, Mm -hmm. Um, shooting Nerf hoops in my office, going for walks. Um, At my old office, we used to get out and there was a cool little place we could skateboard. You know, um, which you're not supposed to do if you're an athlete because you fall down, break your wrist, as you know. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I like the fact that you found something that was a really good fit for you personally. So you did 45 days inpatient, and then you said 60 days in PHP. Yes. Now, for those who don't know, PHP is what? Partial hospitalization. Oh, sorry. Partial hospitalization. Partial hospitalization program program php or it was like an iop intensive outpatient but you weren't going home it day how, treatment how did it work it was like a day treatment thing right so yeah. extended throughout the day you'd show up and you'd be there all day and then you'd go home at the end of the day right yeah, yeah so sometimes they call those phps sometimes they call them iops intensive outpatient where you show up you're there all day and then you go home at night was it weekends yeah. too not weekends yeah. no weekends are free weekends go to meetings mm-hmm. um play sober softball um those sort of casey things. loves the sober softball i didn't Do know they, i didn't know they played it sober until i got into recovery <laughs> i always just thought you <laughs> know, it was a requirement yeah i thought you had to be drunk to, to, to play to softball drink. but well. no it's sober softball is the thing uh so how many days of sobriety what's your sobriety date uh it's october 19th 2019 so coming up on three years so three years plus some change wow yeah, math is hard. It is. It isn't the easiest. No, not no. for me. Uh, but now you're working with our, our friends at Fit to Recover. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah, so I uh, met Ian when I was in treatment. He would come in to Brighton and do workout classes. And then we would go there to boot camp. Um, and then we would also go to the women's group on Thursday nights um, with Vicky and Lacey. And I just got plugged in there. Like I, I fell in love with what they were doing and how they were doing it in the community that they were building. And, uh, after I got out of treatment, I kept showing up and, uh, Vicky actually, after I was in IOP for a while, she at the time was my case manager, had told me about a job opening at FTR. She's like, you should apply. I was like, okay. I'll, I'll try it out. It was for the front desk. Um, and, uh, you know, good transition job after I get out of treatment. And I applied. I got the job. I was so excited. I was so excited. I was like, yeah, it was, it was a dream come true. Um, but I started working there. And uh, I was really... <laughs> Not a good employee. As ever <laughs> I, love it. I should have been fired at least five, six times. But you were sober. I was sober, and I kept showing up, and I was given the grace <laughs> to continue um, to keep working my way um, and to keep making mistakes, keep learning. Um, so, yeah, continue to grow and uh, become a better employee. I show up on time to work, you know. What do you do for them now? I am their administrative director. So meaning umbrella term for I run social media. I uh, manage merchandise. I run the fitness schedule. Um, I teach fitness classes. Pretty much what my week is made up of. 
I love that. And we were walking in. We walked in together. You said you do about 12 to 14 classes a week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got two locations, one in Salt Lake in a new building and then one in Orem. Right. Uh, for those who would like to know more information about Fit to Recover, where do they go? They can go to our website at fitwiththenumber2recover.org. Um, just check us out, see what we've got going. We also have our Instagram at fit underscore to recover and then our Facebook, Fit to Recover and Fit to Recover Utah County. So what does life look like for you now? Life is a breath of fresh air now compared to what it used to be. It's busier. It's filled with a lot more, um, but it's more connected. Um, my relationships with my family are good. Uh, my, uh, I have a, an apartment that I live in. I have a job. I have a circle of friends, um, a community around me. Um, yeah, I, I feel I'm sober today, and that, that's a really big gift. Um, I work with a sponsor. I work with women in the community, um, go to meetings, um, and I'm still learning and figuring it out, but I get to do that sober. Um, and that feels like a really big blessing for me. So what do you, what's it like being on the other side? Like you said, you run like a bunch of 12 something groups a week. You're helping these people that are trying to get, you know, stay, become sober and stay sober. What's it like running the groups now, as opposed to just a few years ago being being in the groups? Right. Yeah. Um, I think the perspective that I have that I know what it was like when I first walked into that group, um, I know the, the fear, the trepidation that people might be going through, but I know that there's a way to walk through it. Um, Do you have to encourage people ever? Like, how, does anybody try to quit on you, like, during the workouts yeah. or anything? Sometimes. Uh, I try not to be too pushy. Yeah. Just have it available for them. Um, but, like, if they are trying to tap out, I'm like, hey, come on, stay with me. Like, we got this. Let's do it together. Um, and I think that can bring people in. And Well, you mentioned feeling connected now. And I think sometimes, what do we say on the show, Casey? The opposite of addiction isn't abstinence. It's connection. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we've got to find that connection. And some people find it at Fit to Recover. Some find it in the 12-step rooms. Others find it in church or with their family. But it, it, it goes back to what I was talking about is that isolation. Yep. You don't have that connection. Mm-hmm. And um, this is too tough to do by yourself. Right. Well, you used the word magic earlier. You said sometimes ma- you know, it feels magical. Magic happens. And I think that's from the like you connecting with people. So, you know, as a psychologist, a therapist myself, I know the importance of connection to help a person change. We call it evocative empathy, where you can connect with somebody and and that empathetic connection encourages them to work hard at something and to change. And I'm convinced that the hardest thing a person, a human being will ever do is change their behavior. Like changing our behavior is the most difficult thing that we can do. And so the fact that you're there on the other side now connecting with people, encouraging them not to not to tap out uh, is pretty cool. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Well, Kate, thank you so much for stopping by and sharing your story today. Uh, I think it's inspirational. And I think it's very insightful the fact that we've had people on here whose rock bottoms have been – you know, horrific. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that yours wasn't because everyone's rock bottom is their rock bottom. Mm-hmm. But your story is probably very similar to a lot of what people are going through uh, out there that, uh, you know. I promise you there are people listening to the show today who are in the position that your parents were in mm-hmm. when you were there in the basement. And they're listening and they're like, what should we do? So what would you tell them? What would you tell a parent who has an adult child who's struggling with an addiction and what would you tell that parent to do? Oh, that's a that's a big question. That's a good question. Um, I think it's just I would say be honest. Be honest. Bring up those conversations. Um and uh know that there is help out there. Um I mean I'm not a parent, but what helped me in that position was honesty. Um, Your mom came and talked to you and said, right. like, have you she thought wasn't, about doing this? Yeah, 
Right. And lo and behold, she'd already set up the meeting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And uh, just to be able to to show support that there is a different way yeah. out there. Yeah. I think honesty to your loved ones and honesty to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I said the first time I ever said I was an addict was, you know, in detox. But truth is, I, that term has been bouncing around in my head for multiple years before that. But it was the addiction battling that. Who's going to win this fight? And uh, I wasn't ready. And it wasn't until I was honest with myself after the accident. It's like, I cannot do this anymore. I need help. And I think that's what you mean is there is help out there. Talk to somebody. Talk to Alan on. Call a recovery center. Call the Huntsman Health Mental Institute. The craft program. Yeah. That's a good one. Whatever there is out there. So thank you very much. We appreciate it, Kate. You're an inspiration, and, and I'm proud to call you a friend now. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me on the show. Thanks, Casey. Thanks, you, Dr. Matt. You've been listening to Project Recovery. And in case you forgot what, Dr. Matt? It is still a KSL podcast. 7 plus 7, 13. Right <laughs> of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.